Greetings and salutations. I am Ken Barrios, your success coach. I hope you unleash your talents and maximize your impact without compromising your time. It is my pleasure to read the 16 Laws of Success by Napoleon Hill, written in 1928 and now public domain. My hope is that you will take from these small segments of reading the insight and wisdom of a philosophy that has over a hundred years of practical experimentation. With that said, let us begin. Law of Success, Lesson Seven: Enthusiasm. Enthusiasm is a state of mind that inspires and arouses one to put action into the task at hand. It does more than this; it is contagious, and vitally affects not only the enthusiast but all whom he comes in contact. Enthusiasm bears the same relationship to a human being that steam does to a locomotive. It is the vital moving force that impels action. The greatest leaders of all men are those who know how to inspire enthusiasm in their followers. Enthusiasm is the most important factor entering into salesmanship. It is by far the most vital factor that enters into public speaking. If you wish to understand the difference between a man who is enthusiastic and one who is not, compare Billy Sunday with the average man of his profession. The finest sermon ever delivered would fall upon deaf ears if it were not backed with enthusiasm by the speaker. How enthusiasm will affect you? Mixed enthusiasm with your work, and it will not seem hard or monotonous. Enthusiasm will so energize your entire body that you can get along with less than half the usual amount of sleep, and at the same time, it will enable you to perform the two to three times. As much work as you usually perform in a given period, without fatigue. For many years, I have done most of my writing at night. One night, while I was enthusiastically at work over my typewriter, I looked out the window of my study, just across the square from the Metropolitan Tower in New York City, and saw what seemed to be the most peculiar reflection of the moon on the tower. It was a silvery gray shade, such as I had never seen before. Upon close inspection, I found that the reflection that of the early morning sun and not of the moon. It was daylight. I had been at work all night, but I was so engrossed in my work that 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 night had passed as though it were but an hour. I worked at my task all that all day and all the following night without stopping, except for a small amount of light food. Two nights and one day without sleep. And with but little food, without the slightest evidence of fatigue, would not have been possible had I not kept my body energized with enthusiasm over the work at hand. Enthusiasm is not merely a figure of speech; it is a vital force that you can harness and use with profit. Without it, it would with it. Well, yeah, without it, you would resemble an electric battery without electricity. Enthusiasm is the vital force with which you recharge your body and develop a dynamic personality. Some people are blessed with natural enthusiasm, while others must acquire it. The procedure through which it may be developed is simple. It begins by doing of your work or rendering of the service which one likes best. If you should be so situated that the, you cannot conveniently engage in the work which you like best for that time being. You can proceed along the line very effectively by adopting a definite chief aim that contemplates your engaging in the particular work.
at some future time. Lack of capital and many other circumstances over which you have no immediate control may force you to engage in work which you do not like, but no one can stop you from determining in your own mind what your definite chief aim in life shall be, nor can anyone stop you from planning ways and means for translating this aim into reality, nor can anyone stop you from mixing enthusiasm with your plans. Happiness, the final object of all human effort, is a state of mind that can be maintained only through the hope of future achievement. Happiness lies always in the future and never in the past. Happy, uh, The happy person is the one who dreams of heights of achievement that are yet unattained. The home you intend to own, the money you intend to earn and place in the bank, the trip you intend to take when you can afford it, the position in life you intend to fill when you have prepared yourself, and the preparation itself. These are the things that produce happiness. Likewise, these are the materials out of which your definite chief aim is formed. These are the things over which you may become enthusiastic, no matter what your present situation in life may be. More than 20 years ago, I became enthusiastic over an idea. When the idea first took form in my mind, I was unprepared to take even the first step towards its transformation into reality, but I had nursed it in my mind. I became enthusiastic over it as I looked ahead in my imagination and saw the time when I would be prepared to make it a reality. The idea was this. I wanted to become the editor of a magazine based on the golden rule, through which I could inspire people to keep up courage and deal with one another squarely. Finally, my chance came, and on Armistice Day, 1918, I wrote the first editorial for what was to become the material realization of a hope that had lain dormant in my mind for nearly a score of years. With enthusiasm, I poured into the editorial the emotions which I had been developing in my heart over a period of more than 20 years. My dream had come true. My editorship of Natural Magazine had become a reality. As I have stated, this editorial was written with enthusiasm. I took it into the man of my acquaintance, and with enthusiasm, I read it to him. The editorial ended in these words, quote, At last, my 20-year-old dream is about to come true. It takes money, and a lot of it, to publish a national magazine, and I haven't the slightest idea where I am going to get this essential factor, but this is worrying me not at all because I know I am going to get it somewhere. Quote, As I read those lines, I mixed enthusiasm and faith with them. I hardly finished reading the editorial when the man to whom I read it, the first and only person to whom I had shown it, said, Quote, I can tell you where you're going to get the money. I'm going to supply it. Quote. And he did. Yes, enthusiasm is a vital force. So vital, in fact, that no man who has it ever developed can begin even approximate his power of achievement. Before passing to the next step in this lesson, I wish to repeat and to emphasize the fact that you may develop enthusiasm over your definite chief aim in life no matter whether you are in a position to achieve that purpose at this time or not. You may be a long way from realization of your definite chief aim, but if you will kindle the fire of enthusiasm in your heart and keep it burning, before very long the obstacles that now stand in your way of attainment of that purpose will melt away as if by force of magic, and you will find yourself in possession of power that you did not know you even possessed.
break break i would like to have a quick word from our sponsor thank you for your time let's get back to the reading how your enthusiasm will affect others we come now to the discussion of one of the most important subjects of this reading course namely suggestion in the preceding lessons we have discussed the subject of auto suggestion which is self self suggestion you saw in lesson 3 what an important part of auto-suggestion played. Suggestion is a principle through which your mind, your words, and your acts, and even your state of mind, influence others. What you may comprehend for far-reaching power of suggestion, let me refer to the introductory lesson, in which the principle of telepathy is described. If you now understand and accept the principle of telepathy, the communication of thought from one mind to another without the aid of signs, symbols, or sounds, as a reality, you, of course, understand why enthusiasm is contagious and why it influences all within its radius. When your own mind is vibrating at a high rate because it has been stimulated with enthusiasm, that vibration registers in the minds of all within its radius, especially in the minds of those with whom you come in close contact. When a public speaker senses the feelings of his audience is in rapport with him and merely recognizes the fact that his own enthusiasm has influenced the minds of his listeners until their minds are vibrating in harmony with his own. When the salesman senses the fact that the psychological moment for closing a sale has arrived, he merely feels the effect of his own enthusiasm as it influences the mind of his prospective buyer and places that mind in rapport, in harmony with his own. The subject of suggestion constitutes so vitally an important part of this lesson and this entire course that I will now proceed to describe the three mediums through which it usually operates, namely, what you say, what you do, and what you think. When you are enthusiastic over the goods you are selling or the services you are offering or the speech you are delivering, your state of mind becomes obvious to all who hear you by the tone of your voice, whether you have ever thought of it in this way or not. It is a tone in which you make a statement more than it is the statement itself that carries conviction or falls to fails to convince. No mere combination of words can ever take place of a deep belief in a statement that is expressed in burning enthusiasm. Words are but devitalized, sounds unless colored with the feeling that is born of enthusiasm. Here the printed word fails me, for I can never express with mere type and paper, the difference between words that fall from unemotional lips, without the fire of enthusiasm back of them, and those which seem to pour forth from a heart that is bursting with eagerness for expression, the difference is there, however. Thus, what you say, and the way in which you say it, conveys a meaning that may be just the opposite to what is intended. This accounts for many a failure by the salesman who presents his arguments in words which seem logical enough but lacked coloring that came only from enthusiasm, one is that is born of sincerity and belief in the goods he is trying to sell. His words said one thing, but the tone of his voice suggested something entirely different. Therefore, no sale was made. That which you say is an important factor in the operation of the principal suggestion, but not nearly so important as to which you do. Your acts will count for more than your words, and woe unto you if it fail to harmonize. If a man preach the golden rule as a sound rule to conduct all his works will fall upon deaf ears if he does not practice what that which he preaches. 
The most effective sermon that any man can preach on the soundness of the golden rule is that which he preaches by suggestion when he applies this rule in his relationship and with his fellow men. If a salesman of Ford automobiles drives up to his prospective purchaser in a Buick or is some of make of a car, all the arguments he can present on behalf of the Ford will be without effect. Once I went into one of the offices of a dictaphone company to look at a dictaphone, the salesman in charge presented a logical argument as to the machine's merit, while the stenographer at his side was describing letters from a shorthand notebook. His arguments in favor of the dictating machine, as compared with the older method of dictating to a stenographer, did not impress me, because his actions were not in harmony with his words. Your thoughts constitute the most important of the three ways in which you apply the principle of suggestion. For the reason they control the tone of your words and to some extent at least your actions. If your thoughts and your actions and your words harmonize, you are bound to influence those whom you come in contact more or less towards your way of thinking. Alright, this is me talking for a minute. I'm going to reread that. If your thoughts and your actions and your words harmonize, you are bound to influence those to whom you come in contact more or less towards your way of thinking. Hmm. All right, back to what he was saying. We will now proceed to analyze the subject of suggestion and to show you exactly how to apply the principle upon which it operates. As we have already seen, suggestion differs from auto-suggestion only in the one way we use it consciously or unconsciously, when we influence others, while we use auto-suggestion as a means of influencing ourselves. <clears throat> Before we, you can influence another person through suggestion, that person's mind must be in a state of neutrality. That is, it must be open and receptive to your method of suggestion. Right now, right here, is where the most salesmen fail. They try to make a, they try to make a sale before the mind of prospective buyer has been rendered receptive or neutralized. This is such a vital point in this lesson that I feel impelled to dwell upon it until there can be no doubt that you understand the principle that I am describing. When I say when I say that a salesman must neutralize the mind of his prospective purchaser before a sale can be made, I mean that the prospective purchaser's mind must be credulous. A state of confidence must have been established, and it is obvious that there can be no set rule for either establishing confidence or neutralizing the mind to a state of openness. Here, the ingenuity of the salesman must have supply, which cannot be set down as a hard and fast rule. I know of a life insurance salesman who sells nothing but large policies, amounting to $100 million and upward. Before this man even approaches the subject of insurance with a prospective client, he familiarizes himself with the prospective client's complete history including his education, his financial status, his eccentricities, if he has any, his religious preferences, and other data too numerous to be listed. Armed with this information, he manages to secure an introduction under conditions which permit him to note the prospective client in a social as well as a business way. Nothing is said about the sale of life insurance during this first visit, nor his second. And sometimes he does not approach the subject of insurance until he has become very well acquainted with the prospective client. All this time, however, he is not dissipating his efforts. He is taking advantage of those friendly visits for the purpose of neutralizing his prospective client's mind. That is, he is building up a relationship of confidence so that when the time comes for him to talk life insurance, 
that which he says will fall upon ears that are willingly listen. Some years ago, I wrote a book entitled How to Sell Your Services. Just before the manuscript went to publisher, it occurred to me to request some of the well-known men of the United States to write letters of endorsement to be published in the book. The printer was then waiting for the manuscript. Therefore, I hurried, hurriedly wrote a letter to some eight or ten men in which I briefly outlined exactly what I wanted, but the letter brought back no replies. I had failed to observe two important prerequisites for success. I had written the letter so hurriedly that I failed to inject the spirit of enthusiasm into it, and I had neglected so to word the letter that it had the effect of neutralizing the minds of those to whom it was sent. Therefore, I had not paved the way for the application of the principal's suggestion. After I discovered my mistake, I then wrote a letter that was based on strict application of the principal's suggestion. And this letter not only brought back the replies from all whom it was sent, but many of the replies were masterpieces and served far beyond the fondest hopes as valuable supplements to the book for the purpose of comparison to show you how the principal suggestion may be used in writing a letter and an important part of enthusiasm plays in giving the written word flesh. The two letters are here reproduced. It will not be necessary to indicate which letter failed as it will be quite obvious. So this is a letter. I'm going to quote the whole thing. And um, it will begin with this. My dear Mr. Ford, I am just completing a manuscript for a new book entitled How to Sell Your Services. I anticipate the sale of several hundred thousands of these books and I believe those who purchased the book would welcome the opportunity of receiving a message from you as it is the best method of marketing personal services. Would you, therefore, be good enough to give me a few minutes of your time by writing a brief message to, to be published in my book? This will be a big favor to me personally, and I know it would, be, it would be appreciated by the readers of this book. Thank you in advance for any consideration you may care to show me. I am yours very truly. Here's the second letter. My dear Mr. Marshall, would you care for the opportunity to send a message of encouragement and possibly a word of advice to a few hundred thousand of your fellow men who have failed to make their mark in the world as successful as you have done? I have about to complete a manuscript for a book to be entitled How to Sell Your Services. The main point of, made in the book is that the services rendered is cause and the pay envelope is effect, and the latter varies in proportion to the efficiency of the former. The book would be incomplete without a few words of advice from a few men who, like yourself, have come up from the bottom to enviable positions in the world. Therefore, if you will write me your views as to the most essential points to be borne in mind by those who are offering personal services for sale, I will pass your message on through my book, which will ensure it's getting into the hands where it will do a world of good for a class of earnest people who are struggling to find their places in the world. I know you're a very busy man, Mr. Marshall, but please bear in mind that by simply calling in your secretary and dictating a brief letter, you will be sending forth an important message to possibly half a million people. In money, this will not be worth to you the two-cent stamp that you will place on the letter, but it, as if estimated from the viewpoint of the good it may do others who are less fortunate than yourself, 
it will be worth the difference between success and failure to many who are a worthy person who will read your message and believe in it and be guided by it. You're cordially yours. Now, let's analyze into letters and find out why one failed in its mission while the other succeeded. This analysis should start with the one of the most important fundamentals of salesmanship, namely motive. In the first letter, it is obvious that the motive is entirely one of self-interest. The letter states exactly what is wanted, but wording of it leaves a doubt as to why the request is made or whom it is intended to benefit. Study this sentence in the second paragraph. This will be a big favor to me personally. Quoted. Now, it may seem to be a particular trait, but the truth is that most people will not grant favors just to please others. If I ask you to render a service that will benefit me without bringing you some corresponding advantage, you will not show much enthusiasm in granting me that favor. You may refuse altogether if you have plausible excuse for refusing. But if I ask you to render a service that will benefit a third person, even though that service must be rendered through me, and if that service is of such nature that it is likely to reflect credit on you, the chances are that you will render your, the service willingly. We see this psychologically demonstrated by the man who pitches a dime to the beggar on the street, or perhaps refuses even the dime, but willingly hands over a hundred or thousands of dollars to a charity worker who is begging in the name of others. But the most damaging suggestion of all is contained in the last and most important paragraph of the letter, thanking you in advance for any consideration you care to show me. This quoted, this sentence strongly suggests that the writer of the letter anticipates a refusal of the, his request. It clearly indicates lack of enthusiasm. It paves the way for refusal of the request. There is not one single word in the entire letter that places in the mind of a man to whom it is sent a satisfactory reason why he should comply with the request. On the other hand, he can clearly see that the object of the letter is to secure him a letter of endorsement that will help sell the book. The most important selling argument, in fact, the only selling argument available in connection with this request, has been lost because it was not brought out and established as the real motive for making the request. This argument was, but faintly mentioned in the sentence, quote, I believe those who purchased the book would welcome the opportunity to receive a message from you as to be the best method of marketing personal services, quote. The opening paragraph of the letter violates an important fundamental fundamental of salesmanship because it clearly suggests that the object of the letter is to gain some advantage for its writer. It does not even hint at any corresponding advantage that may accrue to the person to whom it is sent. Instead of neutralizing the mind of the recipient of the letter and as it should do, it has just the opposite effect. It causes him to close his mind against all argument that follows. It puts him in the frame of mind that makes it easy for him to say no. It reminds me of a salesman, or perhaps I should say a man who wanted to be a salesman, who once approached me for the purpose of selling me a subscription to the Saturday Evening Post. As he held a copy of the magazine in front of me and suggested that the answer I should make by his by this question, quote, you wouldn't subscribe for the Post to help me out, would you? Quote, of course I said no. He made it easy for me to say no. There was no enthusiasm back of his words and gloom of discouragement were written all over his face. He needed the commission he would have made by made on my subscription had I purchased. No doubt about that. But he suggested nothing. 
that appealed to my self-interest motive. Therefore, he lost the sale. But the loss of this one sale was not the sad part of his mis misfortune. The sad part was that the same attitude was causing him to lose all other sales which he might have made had he changed his approach. A few weeks later, another subscription agent approached me. She was selling a combination of six magazines, one of which was the Saturday Evening Post. But how different was her approach? She glanced at my library table, in which she saw several magazines, then at my bookshelves and exclaimed with enthusiasm, Oh, I see you are a lover of books and magazines. I proudly pleaded guilty to the charge, observed the word proudly, for it was an important bearing on, the insist on this incident. I laid down the manuscript that I was reading when the saleswoman came in, for I came to see that she was a woman of intelligence. Just how I came to see this, I will leave to your imagination. The important point is that I laid down the manuscript and actually felt myself wanting to hear what she had to say. With the aid of 11 words, plus a pleasant smile, plus a tone of genuine enthusiasm, she had neutralized my mind sufficiently to make me want to hear her. She had performed her most difficult task, with those few words, because I had made up my mind when she was announced that I would keep my manuscript in my hands and thereby convey her mind as politely as I could the fact that I was busy and did not wish to detain. Being a student of salesmanship and of suggestion, I carefully watched to see what her next move would be. She had a bundle of magazines under her arm, and I expected she would unroll it and begin to encourage me to purchase, but she didn't. You will recall that I said that she was selling a combination of six magazines, not merely, not merely trying to sell them. She walked over to the bookshelves, pulled out a copy of Emerson's essays, and for the next 10 minutes, she talked about Emerson's essays on compensation so interestingly that I lost sight of the role of magazines she had carried. She neutralized my mind some more. Incidentally, she gave me a sufficient number of new ideas about Emerson's work to provide material for an excellent editorial. Then she asked me which magazines I had received regularly. After I told her, she smiled as she began to unroll her bundle of magazines and laid them on the table in front of me. She analyzed her magazines one by one and explained just why I should have each of them. The Saturday Evening Post would bring me the cleanest fiction. Literally, di literal digest would bring me the news of the world in condensed form, such as a busy man like myself would demand. The American magazine would bring me the latest biographies of men who were leading in business and industry, and so on, until she had covered the entire list. But I was not responding to her argument as freely as she thought I should have, so she slipped me this gentle suggestion, quote, a man of your position is bound to be well informed, and if he isn't, it will show up in his own work, quote, she spoke the truth. Her remark was both a compliment and a gentle reprimand. She made me feel somewhat sheepish because she had taken inventory of my reading material. The six leading magazines were not on my list. The six that she was selling. Then I began to slip by asking her how much the six magazines would cost. She put out the finishing touches of a well-presented sales talk by this tactful reply. The cost? Why, the cost is the entire number is less than you receive for a single page of the typewritten manuscript that you had in your hands when I came in. Quote, Again, she spoke the truth. And how did she happen to guess so well what I was getting for my manuscript? The answer is, she didn't guess. She knew. She made it part of her business to draw me out tactfully as to the nature of my work, 
which in no way made me angry. She became so deeply interested in, in the manuscript, which I had laid down when she came in, that she actually induced me to talk about it. I am saying so, of course, that this required any great amount of skill or coaxing, for I had not said that it was my man manuscript. In my remarks about the manuscript, I suspected, I admitted that I was receiving $250 for for the 15 pages. Yes, I am sure I was careless enough to admit that I was being well paid for my work. Perhaps she induced me to make the admission. At any rate, the information was of it was valuable to her, and she made effective use of it at the psychological moment. For all I knew, it was a part of her plan to observe carefully all that she saw and heard with the object of finding out just what my weakness were and what I was most interested in discussing. Some salesmen take the time to do this, some do not. She was one who did. Yes, she went away with my order for the six magazines, also the, my $12, but that was not all the, she, all the benefit she derived from the tactical suggestion plus enthusiasm. She got my consent to canvas my office. Before she left, she had five other orders from my employees. And no time during her stay did she leave the impression that I was favoring her by purchasing her magazines. Just to the contrary, she distinctly impressed me with the feeling that she was rendering me a favor. This was a tactful suggestion. Before we get away from this incident, I wish to make an admission. When she drew me into the conversation, she did it in such a way that I talked with enthusiasm. There were two reasons for this. She was one of them, and the other one was the fact that she managed to get me to talk about my own work. Of course, I am not suggesting that you should be a meddlesome enough to smile at my carelessness as you read this, or that you should gather from this incident the impression that this tactful salesman actually led me to talk of my own work for the purpose of neutralizing my mind so that I would listen to her when she was ready to talk to, of her magazines. As patiently as she had listened to me, however, if you would should be clever enough to draw a lesson from her method, there is no way for me to stop you from doing so. As I have stated, when I talked, I mixed the enthusiasm with my conversation. Perhaps I caught the spirit of enthusiasm from this clever saleswoman, when she made the opening remark and as she came into my study. Yes, I am sure this was where I caught it, and I'm just as sure that her enthusiasm was not a matter of accident. She had trained herself to look for something in the prospective purchaser's office or his work or his conversation over which she could express enthusiasm. Remember, suggestion and enthusiasm go hand in hand. I can remember, as though it were yesterday, the feeling that I came over me that the would-be salesman pushed the Saturday evening post in front of me, and he remarked, Wouldn't you subscribe for the post to help me, wouldn't you? His words were chilled. They were lifeless. They lacked enthusiasm. They registered an impression in my mind, but the impression was one of coldness. I wanted to see the man go out the door at which he had come in. Mind you, I am not naturally unsympathetic, but the tone of his voice, the look on his face, the general bearing suggested that he was here to ask a favor and not to offer one. Suggestion is one of the most subtle and powerful principles of psychology. You are making use of it in all you do and say and think. But unless you understand the difference between the negative suggestion and positive suggestion, you may be using it in such a way 
that is bringing you defeat instead of success. Science has established the fact that through negative use of suggestion, life may be extinguished. Some years ago in France, a criminal was condemned to death, but before the time of his execution, an experiment was performed on him which conclusively proved that through the principal suggestion, death could be produced. The criminal was brought to the guillotine and his head was placed under the knife, but after he had been blindfolded, the heavy sharp edge plank was then dropped on his neck, producing a shock similar to that of a sharp-edged knife. Warm water was then gently poured on his neck and allowed to trickle slowly down his spine to imitate the flow of warm blood. In seven minutes, the doctors pronounced the man dead. His imagination, the principal suggestion, had actually turned the sharp-edged plank into a guillotine blade and stopped his heart from beating. In the little town where I was raised, where lived an old lady who constantly complained that she feared death from cancer. During her childhood, she seen a woman who had cancer and the sight had so impressed itself upon her mind that she began to look for symptoms of cancer in her own body. She was sure that every little ache and pain was the beginning of a long look for a symptom of cancer. It had seen her place on her hand and her breast and have heard her exclaim, Oh, I'm sure I have cancer growing there. I can feel it. When complaining of this imaginary disease, she always placed her hand on her left breast, where she believed the cancer was attacking her. For more than 20 years, she kept this up. A few weeks ago, she died. It was cancer in her left breast. If suggestion will actually turn the edge of a plank into a guillotine blade and transform healthy body cells into parasites out of which cancer will develop, can you not imagine what it will do in destroying disease germs? If properly directed, suggestion is the law that which mental healers work what appear to be miracles. I have personally witnessed the removal of a parasitical growth known as warts to the aid of suggestion with, within 48 hours. Thank you for your time today. I hope you learned as much as I did in this reading. If you ever desire to connect with me, you can email me at kb at keybravo.com. That is kb at keybravo.com. Have a wonderful day and may you be blessed with all the success you endeavor.